Chapter Seventeen of A Son of the Middle Border by Hamlin Garland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Taste of Village Life. The change from farm to village life, though delightful, was not so complete as we had anticipated, for we not only carried with us several cows and a span of horses, but the house which we had rented stood at the edge of town and possessed a large plot. Therefore we not only continued to milk cows and curry horses, but set to work at once planting potatoes and other vegetables, almost as if still upon the farm. The soil had been poorly cultivated for several years, and the weeds sprang up like dragon's teeth. Work, it seemed, was not to be escaped even in the city. Though a little resentful of this labor, and somewhat disappointed in our dwelling, we were vastly excited by certain phases of our new surroundings. To be within a few minutes' walk of the post office, and to be able to go to the store at any moment, were conditions quite as satisfactory as we had any right to expect. Also we slept later, for my father was less disposed to get us out of bed at dawn, and this in itself was an enormous gain, especially to my mother. Osage, a small town, hardly more than a village, was situated on the edge of a belt of hardwood timber through which the Cedar River ran, and was quite commonplace to most people. But to me it was both mysterious and dangerous, for it was the home of an alien tribe, hostile and pitiless, the town boys. Up to this time I had both hated and feared them, knowing that they hated and despised me, and now suddenly I was thrust among them and put on my own defenses. For a few weeks I felt like a young rooster in a strange barnyard, knowing that I would be called upon to prove my quality. In fact, it took but a week or two to establish my place in the tribe, for one of the leaders of the gang was Mitchell Scott, a powerful lad of about my age, and to his friendship I owe a large part of my freedom from persecution. Uncle David came to see us several times during the spring, and his talk was all about going west. He was restless under the conditions of his life on a farm. I don't know why this was so, but a growing bitterness clouded his voice. Once I heard him say, I don't know what use I am in the world. I am a failure. This was the first note of doubt, of discouragement, that I had heard from any member of my family, and it made a deep impression on me. Disillusionment had begun. During the early part of the summer, my brother and I worked in the garden with frequent days off for fishing, swimming, and burying, and we were entirely content with life. No doubts assailed us. We swam in the pond at Rice's Mill, and we cast our hooks in the sunny ripples below it. We saw the circus come to town and go into camp on a vacant lot, and we attended every movement of it with a delicious sense of leisure. We could go at night with no long ride to take after it was over. The Fourth of July came to seek us this year, and we had but to step across the way to see a ball game. We were at last in the center of our world. In June, my father called me to help in the elevator, and this turned out to be a most informing experience. The street, as it was called, was merely a wagon road which ran along in front of a row of wheat warehouses of various shapes and sizes, from which the buyers emerged to meet the farmers as they drove into town. Two or three or more of the men 
would clamber up the load, open the sacks, sample the grain, and bid for it. If one man wanted the load badly, or if he chanced to be in a bad temper, the farmer was the gainer. Hence very few of them, even the members of the grange, were content to drive up to my father's elevator and take the honest market price. They were all hoping to get a little more than the market price. This vexed and embittered my father, who often spoke of it to me. It only shows, he said, how hard it will be to work out any reform among the farmers. They will never stand together. These other buyers will force me off the market, and then there will be no one here to represent the farmer's interest. These merchants interested me greatly, humorous, self-contained, remorseless in trade. They were most delightful companions when off duty. They liked my father in his private capacity, but as a factor of the Grange he was an enemy. Their kind was new to me, and I loved to linger about and listen to their banter when there was nothing else to do. One of them, by reason of his tailor-made suit and a large ring on his little finger, was especially attractive to me. He was a handsome man of a sinister type, and I regarded his expressionless face as that of a gambler. I didn't know that he was a poker player, but it amused me to think so. Another buyer was a choleric Cornishman, whom the other men sometimes goaded into paying five or six cents more than the market admitted, by shrewdly playing on his hot temper. A third was a tall, gaunt old man of New England type, obstinate, honest, but of sanguine temperament. He was always on the bull side of the market, and a loud debater. The fourth, a quiet little man, of smooth address, acted as peacemaker. Among these men my father moved as an equal, notwithstanding the fact of his country training and prejudices. And it was through the man Morley that we got our first outlook upon the bleak world of agnosticism. For during the summer a series of lectures by Robert Ingersoll was reported in one of the Chicago papers, and the West rang with the controversy. On Monday, as soon as the paper came to town, it was the habit of the grain buyers to gather at their little central office, and while Morley, the man with the seal ring, read the lecture aloud, the others listened and commented on the heresies. Not all were sympathizers with the great iconoclast, and the arguments which followed were often heated and sometimes fiercely personal. After they had quite finished with the paper, I sometimes secured it for myself, and hurrying back to my office in the elevator, pored over it with intense zeal. Undoubtedly my father, as well as I, was profoundly influenced by the mistakes of Moses. The faith in which we had been reared had already grown dim, and under the light of Ingersoll's remorseless humor, most of our superstitions vanished. I do not think my father's essential Christianity was in any degree diminished, but he merely lost his respect for certain outworn traditions and empty creeds. My work consisted in receiving the grain and keeping the elevator going, and as I weighed the sacks, made out checks for the payment, and kept the books, in all ways taking a man's place, I lost all sense of being a boy. The motive power of our hoisting machinery was a blind horse, a handsome fellow weighing some fifteen hundred pounds, and it was not long before he filled a large space in my thoughts. There was something appealing in his sightless eyes, and I never watched him as he patiently went his rounds in the dusty shed,
without pity. He had a habit of kicking the wall with his right hind foot at a certain precise point as he circled, and a deep hollow in the sill attested his accuracy. He seemed to do this purposely, to keep count, as I imagined, of his dreary circling through sunless days. A part of my duty was to watch the fanning mill in the high cupola, in order that the sieve should not clog. Three flights of stairs led to the mill, and these had to be mounted many times each day. I always ran up the steps when the mill required my attention, but in coming down I usually swung from beam to beam, dropping from footway to footway like a monkey from a tall tree. My mother, in seeing me do this, called out in terror, but I assured her that there was not the slightest danger, and this was true, for I was both sure-footed and sure-handed in those days. This was a golden summer for us all. My mother found time to read. My father enjoyed companionship with the leading citizens of the town, while Franklin, as first assistant in a candy store, professed himself to be entirely content. My own holidays were spent in fishing or in roving the woods with Mitchell and George, but on Sundays the entire family dressed for church as a solemn social function, fully alive to the dignity of Banker Brush and the grandeur of Congressman Deering, who came to service regularly, but on foot, so intense was the spirit of democracy among us. Theoretically, there were no social distinctions in Osage, but after all, a large house and a two-seated carriage counted, and my mother's visitors were never from the few pretentious homes of the town, but from the farms. However, I do not think she worried over her social position, and I know she welcomed callers from Dry Run and Burr Oak with cordial hospitality. She was never envious or bitter. In spite of my busy life, I read more than ever before, and everything I saw or heard made a deep and lasting record on my mind. I recall with a sense of gratitude a sermon by the preacher in the Methodist Church which profoundly educated me. It was the first time I had ever heard the power of art, and the value of its mission to man insisted upon. What was right and what was wrong had been pointed out to me, but things of beauty were seldom mentioned. With most eloquent gestures, with a face glowing with enthusiasm, the young orator enumerated the beautiful phases of nature. He painted the starry sky, the sunset clouds, and the purple hills in words of prismatic hue, and his rapturous eloquence held us rigid. We have been taught, he said in effect, that beauty is a snare of the evil one, that it is a lure to destroy but I assert that God desires loveliness and hates ugliness. He loves the shimmering of dawn, the silver light on the lake, and the purple and snow of every summer cloud. He honors bright colors, for has he not set the rainbow in the heavens and made the water to reflect the moon? He prefers joy and pleasure to hate and despair. He is not a God of pain, of darkness and ugliness. He is a god of beauty, of delight, of consolation. In some such strain he continued, and as his voice rose in fervent chant and his words throbbed with poetry, the sunlight falling through the window-pane gave out a more intense radiance, and over the faces of the girls a more entrancing color fell. He opened my eyes to a new world, the world of art. I recognized in this man not only a moving orator, 
but a scholar, and I went out from that little church, vaguely resolved to be a student also, a student of the beautiful. My father was almost equally moved, and we all went again and again to hear our young evangel speak, but never again did he touch my heart. That one discourse was his contribution to my education, and I am grateful to him for it. In afterlife, I had the pleasure of telling him how much he had suggested to me in that sermon. There was much to allure a farm boy in the decorum of well-dressed men and the grace of daintily clad women, as well as in the music and the dim interior of the church, which seemed to me of great dignity and charm. And I usually went both morning and evening to watch the regal daughters of the county aristocracy go up the aisle. I even joined a Sunday school class because charming Miss Culver was the teacher, outwardly a stocky, ungraceful youth. I was inwardly a bold squire of romance, needing only a steed and a shield to fight for my lady love. No one could be more essentially romantic than I was at this time, but fortunately no one knew it. Mingling as I did with young people who had been students at the seminary, I naturally developed a new ambition. I decided to enter for the autumn term, and to that end gained from my father a leave of absence during August, and hired myself out to bind grain in the harvest field. I demanded full wages, and when, one blazing hot day, I rode on a shining new marsh harvester into a field of wheat just south of the fairground, I felt myself a man, and entering upon a course which put me nearer the clothing and the education I desired. Binding on a harvester was desperately hard work for a sixteen-year-old boy, for it called for endurance of heat and hunger, as well as for unusual celerity and precision of action. But as I considered myself full-grown physically, I could not allow myself a word of complaint. I kept my place beside my partner hour after hour, taking care of my half of ten acres of grain each day. My fingers, raw and bleeding with the briars, and smarting with the rust on the grain, were a torture, but I persisted to the end of the harvest. In this way I earned enough money to buy myself a Sunday suit, some new boots, and the necessary books for the seminary term which began in September. Up to this time I had never owned an overcoat nor a suit that fitted me. My shirts had always been made by my mother and had no real cuffs. I now purchased two boxes of paper cuffs and a real necktie. My intense satisfaction in these garments made mother smile with pleasure and understanding humor. In spite of my store suit and my high-heeled calfskin boots, I felt very humble as I left our lowly roof that first day and started for the chapel. To me, the brick building, standing in the center of its ample yard, was as imposing as I imagine the Harper Memorial Library must be to the youngster of today as he enters the University of Chicago. To enter the chapel meant running the gauntlet of a hundred citified young men and women, fairly entitled to laugh at a clod-jumper like myself, and I would have balked completely had not David Pointer, a neighbor's son, volunteered to lead the way. Gratefully I accepted his offer and so passed for the first time into the little hall, which came to mean so much to me in after years. It was a large room, swarming with merry young people, and the Corinthian columns painted on the walls, the pipe organ, 
the stately professors on the platform, the self-confident choir, were all of such majesty that I was reduced to hair-like humility. What right had I to be in this splendor? Sliding hurriedly into a seat, I took refuge in the obscurity which my youth and short stature guaranteed to me. Soon, Professor Bush, the principal of the school, gentle, blue-eyed, white-haired, with a sweet and mellow voice, rose to greet the old pupils and welcome the new ones, and his manner so won my confidence that at the close of the service I went to him and told him who I was. Fortunately, he remembered my sister Harriet, and politely said, I am glad to see you, Hamlin, and from that moment I considered him a friend, and an almost infallible guide. The school was, in truth, a very primitive institution, hardly more than a high school, but it served its purpose. It gave farmers' boys like myself the opportunity of meeting those who were older, finer, more learned than they and every day was to me like turning a fresh and delightful page in a story-book, not merely because it brought new friends, new experiences, but because it symbolized freedom from the hay-fork and the hoe. Learning was easy for me. In all but mathematics I kept among the highest of my class without much effort, but it was in the Friday exercises that I earliest distinguished myself. It was the custom at the close of every week's work to bring a section of the pupils upon the platform as essayists or orators, and these exercises formed the most interesting and the most passionately dreaded feature of the entire school. No pupil who took part in it ever forgot his first appearance. It was at once a pillory and a burning. It called for self-possession, memory, grace of gesture, and of voice. My case is typical. For three or four days before my first ordeal, I could not eat. A mysterious uneasiness developed in my solar plexus, a pain which never left me, except possibly in the morning before I had time to think. Day by day, I drilled and drilled and drilled, out in the fields at the edge of town or at home when my mother was away, in the barn while milking. At every opportunity, I went through my selection with most impassioned voice and lofty gestures, sustained by the legends of Webster and Demosthenes, resolved upon a blazing victory. I did everything but mumble a smooth pebble, realizing that most of the boys in my section were going through precisely the same struggle. Each of us knew exactly how the others felt, and yet I cannot say we displayed acute sympathy one with another. On the contrary, those in the free section considered the antics of the suffering section a very amusing spectacle, and we were continually being joshed about our lack of appetite. The test was, in truth, rigorous. To ask a bashful boy or shy girl, fresh from the kitchen, to walk out upon a platform and face that crowd of mocking students was a kind of torture. No desk was permitted. Each victim stood bleakly exposed to the pitiless gaze of three hundred eyes, and as most of us were poorly dressed, in coats that never fitted and trousers that climbed our boot-tops, we suffered the miseries of the damned. The girls wore gowns which they themselves had made, and were, of course, equally self-conscious. The knowledge that their sleeves did not fit was of more concern to them than the thought of breaking down but the fear of forgetting their lines 
also contributed to their dread and terror. While the names which preceded mine were called off that first afternoon, I grew colder and colder, till at last I shook with a nervous chill, and when, in his smooth, pleasant tenor, Professor Bush called out, Hamlin Garland, I rose in my seat with a spring, like Jack from his box. My limbs were numb, so numb that I could scarcely feel the floor beneath my feet, and the windows were only faint gray glares of light. My head oscillated like a toy balloon, seemed indeed to be floating in the air, and my heart was pounding like a drum. However, I had pondered upon this scene so long, and had figured my course so exactly, that I made all the turns with moderate degree of grace, and succeeded finally in facing my audience without falling up the steps, as several others had done, and so looked down upon my fellows like Tennyson's eagle on the sea. In that instant a singular calm fell over me. I became strangely master of myself. From somewhere above me a new and amazing power fell upon me, and in that instant I perceived on the faces of my classmates a certain expression of surprise and serious respect. My subconscious oratorical self had taken charge. I do not at present recall what my recitation was, but it was probably Catiline's defense, or some other of the turgid declamatory pieces of classic literature with which all our readers were filled. It was bombastic stuff, but my blind, boyish belief in it gave it dignity. As I went on, my voice cleared. The window sashes regained their outlines. I saw every form before me, and the look of surprise and pleasure on the smiling face of my principal exalted me. Closing amid hearty applause, I stepped down with a feeling that I had won a place among the orators of the school, a belief which did no harm to others and gave me a good deal of satisfaction. As I had neither money nor clothes, and was not of figure to win admiration, why should I not express the pride I felt in my power to move an audience? Besides, I was only sixteen. The principal spoke to me afterwards, both praising and criticizing my method. The praise I accepted, the criticism I naturally resented. I realized some of my faults, of course, but I was not ready to have even Professor Bush tell me of them. I hated elocution drill in class. I relied on inspiration. I believed that orators were born, not made. There was one other speaker in my section, a little girl, considerably younger than myself, who had the mysterious power of the born actress, and I recognized this quality in her at once. I perceived that she spoke from a deep-seated, emotional, Celtic impulse. Hardly more than a child in years, she was easily the most dramatic reader in the school. She, too, loved tragic prose and passionate, sorrowful verse, and to hear her recite, one of them dead in the east by the sea, and one of them dead in the west by the sea, was to be shaken by inexplicable emotion. Her face grew pale as silver as she went on, and her eyes darkened with the anguish of the poet-mother. Most of the students were the sons and daughters of farmers round about the county, but a few were from the village homes in western Iowa and southern Minnesota. Two or three boys wore real tailor-made suits, and the easy flow of their trouser legs, and the set of their linen collars, 
rendered me at once envious and discontented. Some day, I said to myself, I too will have a suit that will not gape at the neck and crawl at the ankle. But I did not rise to the height of expecting a ring and watch. Shoes were just coming into fashion, and one young man wore pointed box toes, which filled all the rest of us with despair. John Cutler also wore collars of linen, real linen, which had to be laundered, but few of us dared fix our hopes as high as that. John also owned three neckties and wore broad cuffs with engraved gold buttons, and on Fridays waved these splendors before our eyes with a malicious satisfaction which aroused our hatred. Of such complexion are the tragedies and triumphs of youth. How I envied Arthur Peters his calm and haughty bearing. Most of us entered chapel like rabbits, sneaking down a turnip patch, but Arthur and John and Walter loitered in with the easy and assured manner of senators or generals. So much depends upon leather and prunella. Gradually I lost my terror of this ordeal, but I took care to keep behind some friendly bulk like Blakesley, who stood six feet two in his gaiters. With all these anxieties I loved the school, and could hardly be wrested from it even for a day. I bent to my books with eagerness, I joined a debating society, and I took a hand at all the games. The days went by on golden, noiseless, ball-bearing axles, and almost before I realized it, winter was upon the land. But oh, the luxury of that winter, with no snow drifts to climb, no corn stalks to gather, and no long walk to school. It was sweet to wake each morning in the shelter of our little house and know that another day of delightful schooling was ours. Our hands softened and lightened. Our walk became each day less of a galloping plod. The companionship of bright and interesting young people, and the study of well-dressed men and women, in attendance upon lectures and socials, was a part of our instruction, and had their refining effect upon us, graceless colts though we were. Sometime during this winter, Wendell Phillips came to town and lectured upon the lost arts. My father took us all to see and hear this orator hero of his boyhood days in Boston. I confess to a disappointment in the event. A tall old gentleman with handsome clean-cut features rose from beneath the pulpit in the congregational church and read from a manuscript, read quietly, colloquially, like a teacher addressing a group of students with scarcely a gesture, and without raising his voice. Only once, toward the end of the hour, did he thrill us, and then only for a moment. Father was a little saddened. He shook his head gravely. He isn't the orator he was in the good old anti-slavery days. He explained, and passed again into a glowing account of the famous slave speech in Faneuil Hall, when the pro-slavery men all but mobbed the speaker. Per contra, I liked, and all the boys liked, a certain peripatetic temperance lecturer named Beale, for he was an orator, one of those who rise on an impassioned chant, soaring above the snows of Chimborazo, mingling the purple and gold of sunset with the saffron and silver of the dawn. None of us could tell just what these gorgeous passages meant, but they were beautiful while they lasted, and sadly corrupted our oratorical style. 
it took some of us twenty years to recover from the fascination of this man's absurd and highfalutin elocutionary sing-song i forgot the farm i forgot the valley of my birth i lived wholly and with joy in the present song poetry history mingled with the sports which made our life so unceasingly interesting there was a certain girl the daughter of the shoe merchant who temporarily displaced the image of agnes in the niche of my shrine and to roll the platter for her at a sociable was a very high honor indeed and there was another a glorious contralto singer much older than i but there i must not claim to have even attracted her eyes and my meetings with milly were so few and so public that i cannot claim to have ever conversed with her they were all boyish adorations much as i enjoyed this winter greatly as it instructed me i cannot now recover from its luminous dark more than here and there an incident a poem a song it was all delightful that i know so filled with joyous hours that i retain but a mingled impression of satisfaction and regret satisfaction with life as i found it regret at its inevitable ending for my father irritated by the failure of his renter announced that he had decided to put us all back upon the farm end of chapter seventeen